Well, good morning, Mission Valley. It's uh, good to... Oh, that's really cheery. Good morning. All righty, Dell. I want you there every single morning. Um, but it's good to be here today among the body of Christ. And if you're new, if this is your first time, welcome, welcome, because we're so glad we're here. And what we're doing is we're starting our series on the seven churches that are listed in Revelation. And last week, Pastor Phil did an outstanding job of laying the groundwork. Because Revelation could be a hard book to understand. There's so much imagery in there. And so that's something that we're going to have to work through and be mindful of. And so today we're going to start with the church in Ephesus. But if you take a look at summer, what's summer? You know, June, July, August, September. That's like wedding season, right? Now you go and... um you go to the wedding and you see the couple as they share the vows. They're crying and they, they have this look in each other's eyes. And those of us who've been married for a long time just say, that's nice. You know? <laughs> and part of it is we know, we know that, okay, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, you know, it may be a, your marriage might be a little different. Why? Because our love tends to wane, right? But And that was happening in the church of Ephesus, where, you know, they once were in love with God. But all of a sudden, over the course of time, their relationship with God became a burden. You know, it, they lost that love for God, where it was drudgery following Christ. And that might be you today. We've all been there before. You know, maybe you're sitting here today and you're going, you know, hey, Pastor, that's me. That's me right now. You know, when it comes to God, you know, I, I, I thought God was going to come through in certain things, and he didn't. You know, I thought when I came to Jesus that he was going to like, make my life better, not worse. And so all of a sudden, over time, we grow distant from God. And today we're going to talk about how to get that, you know, love or that feeling back but before we do that, um, one of the things that we're going to have to do, or one of the, I guess, qualities that we see throughout a lot of the churches is this whole area of what, this whole area of what it means to persevere. And we're going to see a video on perseverance right now. So if you could show the video, Craig. In education, the one thing we know how to measure best is IQ. But what if doing well in school and in life depends on much more than your ability to learn quickly and easily? So I left the classroom, and I went to graduate school to become a psychologist. I started studying kids and adults in all kinds of super challenging settings. And in every study, my question was, who is successful here and why? My research team and I went to West Point Military Academy, we tried to predict which cadets would stay in military training and which would drop out. We went to the National Spelling Bee and tried to predict which children would advance farthest in competition. We studied rookie teachers working in really tough neighborhoods, asking which teachers are still going to be here in teaching by the end of the school year. And of those, who will be the most effective at improving learning outcomes for their students? We partnered with private companies asking, which of these salespeople is going to keep their jobs? And who's going to earn the most money? In all those very different contexts, one characteristic emerged 
as a significant predictor of success. And it wasn't social intelligence, it wasn't good looks, physical health, and it wasn't IQ. It was grit. Grit is passion and perseverance for very long-term goals. Grit is having stamina. Grit is sticking with your future, day in, day out, not just for the week, not just for the month, but for years, and working really hard to make that future a reality. Grit is living life like it's a marathon, not a sprint. You know, when we think about the future and we think about success, how many of us thought that it was, hey, if I'm smart enough, I'll be successful? Like I said, if I'm good-looking enough, I'll be successful. But what does Angela Lee Duckworth say? One of the things she's looking at as one of the leading indicators of success is grit. And she says, sticking with things over the long term, you know, until you master them. Master them. And so what's grit? I love to tell the story. I've told this story, and you know that I love to tell this story. So since I'm the pastor, I'm going to do it anyway. Um, but there was a time when my son, Michael, and I've already asked if I could share this story. When he was a freshman, he was on the track team, and he was a sprinter. And I remember going to one event. I think it was out somewhere near Diamond Bar, and I was late to this event. And so I go there, and I'm just looking for my son, and I see Michael kind of like in the middle of the field by himself. All of the other track team members, they were all together except for my son. And I'm doing, hey, what happened here? Why is, my, why is Michael by himself when all the other track members are together? And then so I texted him. I said, Michael, you know, what's going on? And he said, Dad, I blew it. And I'm just going, what do you mean you blew it? And he goes, well, they asked me to do the uh, relay race, and I've never done that before. And he's never practiced that before. And so in a relay race, it's not just getting the baton and running. There's a certain area in which you start, and you cannot catch that baton past a certain area. Well, not having ever practiced it or done this before, he didn't know that. And so what happened is he passed the area where he you can't, pass off that baton, and the team was disqualified. And so they were all angry at him. And so as a father, man, it's heartbroken to see your son there. And I'm just thinking, okay, what Bible verse can I text him to make him feel better? And I was struggling and struggling, and I'm a pastor, and this is the best that I could come up with. I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I failed over and over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Who said that? Michael Jordan. All right. See, at that time, I didn't take Takeshi, your Bible memorization class. So if I did, I would have had all these verses, you know. But at the end, I said, you know, don't worry about it, Maka. You know, you know, I love you and I support you. And I said, you know, you don't run this um, relay if you don't want to. The coach can't force you to do something that you don't want to do. And so the next week, the meet was at Gabrielino. And I get this text, Dad, I'm running the relay. And I'm just like, I, 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 oh, that's great. I mean, I was 
texting them, trying to be supportive. And inside, I'm going, oh, no, oh, no. And so I um, so the, Michael was the third in the leg. And they started. I never prayed so hard in my life. I said, oh, Lord, please don't let him drop the baton. Oh, Lord, please don't let him go past the thing. And I was just like this. And then when he, and then when he got the you know, baton, I go like this. I go, oh, he got it, right? He got it. And then all of a sudden, this guy who messed up the week before, he was the Japanese Hussein Bolt, this guy. Well, he ran so fast, so fast. He did, the lead was just incredible. So by the time he got to the last person, he could just go like this, you know? And it was incredible. And guess who was the hero that track event? My son, right? Yay, all right, he gets grabbed. But that's grit to be able to fail in one event and to have the courage to press through that failure and say, you know what? Everybody hated me a week ago. But you know what? I'm going to try it again. Even though I might fail, I'm going to try it again. And that's grit. And parents, that's what we need to teach our children, grit. You know, one of the things Angelique Duckworth said is... um, we don't know how grit is taught. However, one of the things that, you know, we've tried to do with our son Michael is to get him into an activity where he had to do, when he was a child, to do until he was 18. And drumming was one of them, was that activity where you said, you know, at first, you know, it's fun, you know, banging on the drum set like this. Michael had good rhythm. He was up on the worship team. But after a while, What? It gets kind of boring. Dad, you know, I don't want to do drums anymore. What's the deal? You're going to do drums to what? I'm 18. That's right. And then a year later, can I stop drum lessons? What's the deal? I have to do drums till I'm 18. And so, you know, we fell maybe six months short of that goal. But the whole purpose of having him um, do drums even though, um, you know, he was good at it, was what? To teach him to stick with something, even though he didn't like it. Because there are so many um, times in your life where you're going to do something, it's not going to be fun. Church is not always going to be fun. Following Jesus isn't always going to be fun. But we can't quit just because, you know, it's not fun. And so grit is that passion and the perseverance to stick with something over the long haul. And so if you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to um, Revelations chapter 2? And we'll start with verse 1. If you don't have your Bibles, don't worry. We're going to have it um, up here on the screen. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. And probably you're looking at that and going, what is he saying? Well, basically he says to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Basically that's the leader of the church. So he's, so Jesus is writing to the leader of the church um, in Ephesus. And to the um, 
one who holds the seven stars or the seven leaders or elders of the seven churches in his right hand. That, what that's saying is that Jesus has the authority over his church. You know, I am not the ultimate authority, you know, at Mission Valley. You know, Jesus is. You know, my goal is not to do what I want to do. My goal is to seek out, Jesus, what do you want Mission Valley to be about? And do my best to lead us in that direction. And so this is what he was saying. Who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Basically, the seven golden lampstands is just another reference to the church. And what's Jesus saying is, you know what? I'm walking in your churches. You know, I know what's going on in your churches. And um, when you take a look at Ephesus, Ephesus was a highly successful commercial city, very much like Los Angeles. But like many um, successful cities, it was plagued with many vices. You know, they had the temple of Artemis, or the worship of Artemis. And Artemis was this, this, this woman who was pictured with uh, many uh, breasts, whose followers engaged in immoral acts with temple prostitutes. And they had thousands and thousands of them. Also, many of the crafters of the idols of um, Artemis were selling these. And they saw Christianity as a threat to their business because of the Christian's monotheistic belief. And so at this time, the uh, Christians were going through persecution. They were going through um, persecution. Some of them were direct. Others would be more indirect where, you know, I'm not going to hire you because you're Christians. It was hard for Christians to find work at that time because they were being, they were prejudiced against Christians. But this is what Jesus says in uh, verse 2. He says, I know your works your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostle and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. He says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance. And basically when he's using the word toil here, this is like you're just working until you're working up a sweat. Okay, you're working up a sweat. You're really working hard. And so the Christians in Ephesus, they were working hard um, for the church. And they were toiling. They were persevering under um, pressure. And it says that um, you had patient endurance under persecution. You guys didn't react. You didn't reply. You didn't um, give anger for anger. You didn't pay back anger for anger. You endured patiently, and so they were in- engaged in an all-out effort to serve God. You know, they tested their leaders to see if they were truly called by God. And maybe they remembered the warning that the Apostle Paul gave, where we see this in Acts 20, 29 to 30, when he actually left Ephesus and he gave them a warning. And this is what he said to the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He goes, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come among you and not will not spare the flock. And even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away 
made disciples after them. So be on your guard. So basically, John was commend, Jesus is commending them to say, okay, you remembered what Paul was telling you, and that you checked um, all of the leaders to make sure that they were called from God. And you could summarize all of the good deeds that Jesus is saying to them in two words, deeds and theology. Deeds and theology, meaning they were working, they were toiling, they were persevering in their theology. They recognized the difference between good and evil. They were testing those who came and claimed to be pastors and found out that, no, you guys are one of the wolves. They were doing stuff and knowing stuff. And so you think, wow, this is a church. This is the perfect church. This is a saddleback of their time, right? A great church. But, but, let's look in verse 4. It says, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You say, wait a second, wait a second. These guys are doing all of these great things, and Jesus says, Well, time out, time out. I have this against you. You have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned your your first love. And you know that, and we see that in relationships, right? We see that in relationships. Well, a lot of times when we take a look at romance, we think of those warm and fuzzy things. We think of the Disney relationships. We think of that we're in a room, and all of a sudden we look up. Oh, and there, right at the top of the staircase, there she is in a beautiful dress. Ah, that's my princess, the one that I'm going to marry. And guess what? We are going to live happily ever after. Right, that, that's Disney romance, right? But for those of us who've been married, we know that that's fantasy land, right? That doesn't happen where relationships take work. And if all you rely on those warm, fuzzy feelings that you have for one another and your looks and all of that, you probably got about seven years. Seven years. If that's the foundation of your relationship, it's this warm, fuzzy, oh, honey, what? Well, uh, what? <laughs> Six months. Oh, well, don't worry, you got a lot more time. Um, uh, <laughs> but anyway, you know, because relationships don't work that way. And it may be like, oh, yeah, the first two years you guys are in heaven and all of that. And then, boom, it starts going down like this quick. You know why? They call it a seven-year itch for a reason, and that's because that does not sustain a relationship. You know, if you want to sustain a relationship, you need to know how to communicate with one another. You need to share your hopes, your dreams, your fears. You need to talk to one another. You need to be committed to one another. And that's why when people, when I do marital counseling, they say, what's the most important um, aspect or most important a quality that we need to have. And they always say what? Love. Grit. Yeah, which is a grit. But they said love is the most important. And, and I said, no, it's not love. It's commitment. It's commitment. Because I guarantee you, there are some times down the road where you're not going to feel like you love your partner. You know, it was the biggest shock to me when my mother came and told me, Dave, you know, there are some times when I don't love your dad. And I'm like, oh, what? You go, I'm sorry, you know, I, I love your 
Dad, our love is deeper, but he irritates me a lot. And there's sometimes I just don't love him. You know, I'm just going, oh, no. I mean, my world was crashing. Like, what's going on here? And then I realized that, you know what? It's commitment. It's commitment to go through those tough times. Because you know that they're going to happen. It's the ability to communicate with one another. To talk about what's going on. You know, and have the courage to go through it together and say, you know what, I made a commitment and I'm going to keep that commitment. And I realize it's not always easy. But you know what? It's the same thing with our spiritual life, right? When, when we come to Jesus, it's like, oh, this is great. You know, I have my sins forgiven. I'm going to heaven. This is wonderful, you know. But if that's all the basis of your theology, that, woo, my sins are forgiven and then I'm going to go to heaven, Man, you're just, just, just like you married. Your love for Jesus is going to wane. And the church of Ephesus has been around for 40 years. So over time, they lost, number one, their love for God and their, um, their love for each other. And they were just going through the motions. They were working real hard. But what were they working hard at? You know, doing good stuff and making sure the theology was right. They were working hard at setting up their boundaries that says you're either you're in or you're out. And that's what happened. And when you think, how could this happen to a church like that who had such a rich history, who had such great leaders? What well, says, number one, you know, this happens when we focus on form instead of the substance of our face, faith. We work on, um, we, we focus on the form, lifting hands, doing stuff, tithing, serving. We work on, no things are good. Those things are good. But when we focus more on those things than the substance of our faith, we tend to start losing our love for Jesus. We come infatuated with knowledge instead of holiness. We want to know more about our faith. And we are less concerned about the application of what we're learning to our lives. To live a life of holiness. Remember, what does God say? God takes a look at the heart. God looks on the inside. God does not look at the exteriors. He could see right through us. He could see right through me and my phoniness. And he's checking my heart. It says, we lose our evangelistic zeal when we see the world as our enemy instead of our mission field. And Marco did a great job of saying, you know, we need to go out there and tell people about the gospel and good news of Jesus Christ. But when we see them as the enemy, then it causes us to lose our faith. Or we become content with what we are instead of being driven to become more like Christ. I'm good enough. You know, I'm not like so-and-so over there. Or, you know, that pastor did this. You know, I'm not like that. And we become content in who we are. By what? Comparing ourselves to people who are worse than us. Rather than trying to become more like Jesus Christ. Well, you know, this is a familiar story at Mission Valley. Remember four years ago, we took that um, survey... And we took a survey and was um, by this company called The Reveal, which started out of Willow Creek, to really gauge the temperature 
of our church. So, you know, the majority of you filled out evaluations and it came back. But one of the interesting things that um, I was told by the people who were reviewing our results is they were saying, your church seems to be more interested in journeying together than being on a journey with Jesus Christ. Do you see the difference? He said, your church, you know, tends to be uh, more concerned or it's more important that they're on a journey with each other than on a journey with Jesus Christ. You know, when you're reading this and me being the leader of the church, we're going, oh my goodness, you know, what am I doing wrong here? But, you know, praise God, praise God is, yes, we saw that. Yes, this is, um, you know, something that didn't, this wasn't the evaluation that I wanted. But, you know, our staff, you know, we're going to say, you know, we're going to push through this because this church has potential. Yes, this is where we are right now. But you know what? We're going to change. We're going to be more outward focused. We're going to be less inward focused. And guess what? You know, you guys are doing it. You guys are doing it. So good job. Keep up the good work, you know? And um, so that was a reality for us as a church. We were that church, just like Ephesus. But praise God, God's doing a wonderful work, you know, at this church. Or we begin, and this is, you know, we can't get around this one. It's the reason why our love wanes for God is we begin to love something or someone more than we love Christ. Now, we're not going to say that, right? We're not going to say that, Jesus, I don't love you. You know, I love this more than you. I love my job more than you. But isn't that the reality? That's the reality. When our faith wanes, as something takes that place, whether it's in our relationship with Jesus Christ, our relationship with one another, it's the same thing. But, but, you know, even though Jesus criticizes the church, he doesn't leave it there. He gives them a plan. And he, look at it, verse 5, and this is the plan. He goes, okay, guys, you guys were once here. You lost your love, now you're here. But you know what? I'm not through with you guys yet. I got a plan. And it says, remember, therefore, um, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Okay? So the first one is, says, remember what it was like when you first met Jesus. You know, for me, it was like I knew my life was messed up. You know, I'd go to camp and I said, why are these people different than me? I thought I was a Christian. You know, they don't cuss. I'm going at camp and every other word is F this, F that. And this is a church camp. And because that's just the way I talked, you know. But I noticed that they cared for each other. There was this love for one another, you know, and they go, they're different than me. But then when you realize Jesus, and I came in, he goes, Dave, you know what? I died for your sins. I love you. And I came to Jesus. And wow, that was such a relief to me. But you know what? I wasn't going around judging other people. Why? Because I have been forgiven much. And when you've been forgiven much, you don't go around judging other people. Yeah, I was like telling everybody about Jesus Christ. Why? 
Because it was, I remember what a wonderful feeling it was. When all of a sudden my life had meaning. Before it's like, what do we want to do? What do I want to do with my life? My life had meaning. I remembered what it was first like when you met Jesus. I saw Jesus come through, through difficult situations in my life. When there were gangs chasing me. And I would go to school wondering if I'd come back, you know, alive. I saw Jesus there all the time. Even though I lost all my friends. I was alone in high school. Why? Because they were doing things that I thought were wrong. It was just me and God, but that was a wonderful time. And so remember that. Remember what it was like. And then he says, turn away from the thing. The next thing, he says, repent. So the next thing we need to do is turn away from the things that caused you to lose your love for Jesus. Are there things in your life right now that are replacing Jesus on that throne? Remember we made him Lord in life. Lord of our life. Are there things in your life and my life right now that are taking the place of that? And we will never say, Jesus, I love this more than that, than you. But if we're honest with ourselves, if we're honest with ourselves, we need to identify those things that are standing between us and Jesus. We need to identify the things, and they might be good things too. They might be good things too. But we need to identify those things and repent from them and stop doing them because it's causing us to turn away from Jesus. Finally, we need to rekindle that fire. We need to rekindle that fire. And what does he say? And do the works you did at first. And do the things you did at first. And wives or women, you get this, right? It's like all of a sudden you're dating and, you know, all of, we're, all of us, we're just like, oh, we're doing all of this stuff, right? Romantic stuff. We're bringing flowers. We're writing love notes. We're doing all of these things when we're dating. And then what happens? You get married and... Who is this guy? You know, this guy's not the same guy. You know, what? Why? Well, because men, we tend to be conquerors, right? It's like we have a goal, and okay, I got married. Boom, check that off the list. Go on to the next thing. But what's Paul? Uh, what's Paul? Uh, John saying here is that you we need to kindle the fire. Do the things that you did at the start. Remember what it was like when you first met Jesus. And do the things that were just a natural outflow of your love for Jesus. You know, it's the same thing in relationships right now. You know, you know we're, my wife and I, we're going to be empty nesters. Come, like, three, no, 12 days. You know, <laughs> we're going to be empty nesters. You know, and we're wondering, oh my gosh, you know, what's life going to be like? But, you know, it's been kind of like wonderful because we've been able to, I mean, sorry, Mike. I mean, it's not that you're going to be gone. No, Mike's just busy, so he's always doing his own thing. And so, you know, Grace and I have been able to spend more time together going out and dinner. And the one thing that Grace and I did when we were dating um, is we talked a lot. Now, we would just spend hours and hours and hours of talking together, just about everything, everything. And now we're doing more of that, 
you know, spending this more time, even if it's going out to Sam Wu's or whatever dinner and just, you know, talking. We're spending more time talking. And it's wonderful. And, but then I got to remember, too, that I got to do some of the things that we did when we were at the start. I got to do some of the things that I did, you know, at the start. But then also Jesus is saying this. He says, if not, so he criticizes the church. He said, okay, guys, this is what you need to do to fix the problem. But he also gives consequences if those things aren't done. He says, if not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand unless you repent. So basically what he's saying, guys, if you don't come back to me, if you don't put me first, if you don't remember your first love, which is me, your church will cease to exist. And he says, yet um, this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And basically who the Nicolaitans, we don't really know who they are or really what they were teaching. You know, most theologians believe that they were teaching that you know, you could use the freedom you have in Christ to do anything you want. It's like, man, you're forgiven. So if Jesus forgives you, just go for it. Do, indulge yourself in whatever pleasure you want to do. Why? Because God has forgiven you. And that's what they were teaching. But he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who has an ear. He's saying, guys, this is important. I mean, if you could hear me, if you could listen, if you have the ability to hear my voice or read this, listen up. This is important. And he says what? Um, oh, I just oh, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. It says to him who overcomes. Now basically when he talked about overcome, we're not talking about those who reach a higher form of Christianity or spirituality. What he's talking about, he's referring to all believers because it's through the it's only through the grace and the power of God that we can overcome. It's not by your strength. It's not by through your grit. It's only through the grace and the power of God that we can overcome the worldly system. And if you have this, could you just jot down this verse? And um, it's 1 John 5, 4 to 5. And this is what John writes. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is a victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. So basically, the mark of a true believer is that he or she will overcome this world. So you see why grit is so important. Do you see why seeing our faith as a marathon and not a sprint is so important? Why? Because the mark of a true believer is one who overcomes And you're going to see this in every single address to the church. But it's not through our power or our strength that allows us to overcome. It's through the power of 
uh, Jesus. So what's our weekly challenge this week? You know, ask yourself, currently, how much am I in love with Jesus? Now, this is going to take some honesty here, okay? Because what's our natural response? Sometimes we think we love Jesus more than we really do. But what I'd like you to do, and I'm going to do this too, is really ask myself, how much am I I really in love with Jesus? And to be honest with myself, because he knows. And then, I think for most of us, maybe, or for those of us whose love for Jesus is waning, which is natural, it happens to all of us, start thinking about what is causing your love or my love for Jesus to wane. And if you don't know, ask God. Ask God, what is getting in the way of me being able to love you the way I should? And ask God that to reveal that to you. And finally, what is one practical thing I could do to rekindle my love for him? What's just one? I'm not talking about a lot. I'm just talking about one. What's one thing that you could do to rekindle your love for him? And the hint is found in the passage. It's what? Do what you did before. So remember what you did before. And maybe just pick one thing. Just pick one thing. And do that this week. Let's pray. Father God, I know that there are times when all of our love wanes for you. And I thank you that you're a God that loves us unconditionally. And Father, that you know that. And Father, you know that, you know, we've had hopes that were dashed. Father, that we've had disappointments that we thought maybe, just maybe, you would have come through in a different way. That you would have directed our lives in, in one way. And all of a sudden, it seems like you're sending us in a different direction. Father, we've gone through hardships. And we've gone through trials. And some of us, Father, might just be tired. Some of us might be questioning whether you love us or not. But Father, I thank you that you are greater than all of our doubts. That your love for us is greater than our ability to love you. But Father, I pray that this will be this week that we would really spend time to really take a look at our lives and, you know, see how much maybe we've fallen from where we were. And knowing that you're not going to be there to punish us, but, Father, you're there waiting with open arms for us to come back. And so, Father, if there's anyone here, you know, including myself, Father, that are in that position right now where we just feel like our faith right now is just more of a duty and a drudgery than it is being in a love relationship with you. Father, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Father, that you would return us to our first love and to allow us to do the things that we did when we first met you and to have the hope knowing that it's possible because you said it could happen. In your son's name we pray, amen.